a big, grand, healthy, happy 2024 to you from the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I welcome you back. Thanks for choosing us as a source of mining information out there. I have to say it was a bit of an unusual holiday season from my personal perspective. You know, I'm 44, so I'm not sure if that's a function of just things changing as you get older. As I was telling people, you know, the older I get, the more every Christmas is different. You know, unlike when you're a kid where it feels a little more constant, at least it was for me, this one felt a little muted. And I'm not sure if it's a function of the wars that are out there, whether it is the Ukraine war, which is ramping up again, as we're seeing Russia really amp up the attacks in response to maybe the ship that got attacked, as well as, I guess, a border city there in Russia being attacked, 25 people killed. I think I saw a quote where Putin, his blood was boiling, as they were putting it there. So so we have that war continuing. We have the Israel-Hamas war continuing. And as far as there being an end in sight on that one, I was reading they need another six months. That's what I was reading yesterday, that Israel was saying they need another six months. So again, back to this sense of it feeling just slightly muted out there. And of course, there's the ominous specter of the 2024 U.S. presidential election, which I think wherever you sit on the political spectrum, there doesn't seem to be a huge reservoir of hope out there that things are going to dramatically improve, right? So it's kind of a weird season. And it got me thinking as gold, you know, perks up here at record levels, really hovering at the record level. Let me just look here on CNBC as I speak at $2,076, right? And as Jeffrey Christian was mentioning last week, we were up above 2100 there for about 20 minutes, which he said was a very long time. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend it. If you're a gold investor or just interested in macro, Jeffrey Christian's pretty good at it. You know, as he said in the interview, quoting someone else, the reason why Jeffrey Christian is good at predicting gold prices is because he's good at assessing global macro, which was kind of interesting. And it brings back another thought that he was saying there last week, which was, High gold prices are like low interest rates. You kind of want them, but you kind of don't want them at the same time because it probably means things aren't going so well in the world. So I feel like the gold price is kind of a good, you know, just hovering there. It's not shooting through the roof, but it is at record prices, you know, and I feel like that, if anything, captures the sentiment right now. It's not exploding, but it's just high. If we were to use that as an anxiety meter, so to speak, of mass psychology, a huge factor in the investment philosophy of one of the great newsletter writers, James Dines, rest in peace, we say to Mr. Dines from the Northern Miner podcast, a huge influence, at least on me personally, probably the reason I got into this business. Starting off with a newsletter that I found online telling me to invest in rare earths when I knew nothing about mining you know, 15 years ago, which put me on a path to speaking to you in your headphones right now. So it's always good to pay your respects here. But just taking a step back, 
And then you look over at the Red Sea and what's going on with international shipping. Today's headline, an Iranian warship entering the Red Sea. Things continue to amp up there. Maersk, the shipping company that put out the press release on December 24th that we were reading at the beginning of last week's episode, who said they would start to try out basically putting in vessels into the Red Sea again through the Suez Canal. And it sounds like they have aborted that mission after being targeted by what sounds like a Houthi missile and four Houthi boats, three of which were destroyed last week by a U.S. helicopter after being shot on. All to say, you know, a pretty intense landscape here, which makes gold feel like, and of course not financial advice over here, but in my mind, gold is the new cash. We were discussing this a little bit with Jeffrey Christian there the other day. And what's beautiful about it as an investment is it has, as Jeffrey was pointing out, a risk-on and a risk-off case for it. You know, a fear and a greed case for owning gold. So just on a personal level, if I'm buying and selling an investment, I'm just going, why don't I just put that in gold over, you know, U.S. dollars? Because you still get that upside. And if there's a risk-off event, you probably still get upside. So it's looking like an attractive investment here. So as we try and get a big perspective here, which is ultimately what I'm trying to deliver here on a weekly basis from the natural resources perspective, in that spirit, I've brought on Cecilia Jamazmi to discuss the major stories that changed the mining industry in 2023, including the resurgence of resource nationalism, the changing politics in Latin America, whether it is Panama and Chile, you know, once thought of as traditionally safe jurisdictions, Mexico changing on a dime seemingly, or whether it's looking at Argentina, which all of a sudden is starting to look kind of good. You know, and there's a lesson there that it seems like the definition of a safe jurisdiction maybe needs to be redefined because it seems to me that everything can change in one election right? Or even look at Panama. The government is pro-mining, but there's this wave of activism, as we discuss in this interview, that changed everything. And it doesn't even matter, interestingly, who gets elected if a huge amount of the public comes out and paralyzes the country. So as they say, it's the fourth turning. It is a dramatic decade, you know, and I think COVID coming in right there, you know, in late December 2019, the first stories started appearing on the Drudge Report there, like December 30th or 31st of this virus out of China. It really set the tone of the 2020s so far. One hopes that we make it through without, frankly, too much damage, but it does seem like a decade of volatility here. And unfortunately, it seems like things are ramping up in terms of the danger factor rather than ramping down. And finally, I mean, there's always this issue of resource scarcity. I mean, we're really starting to see it in copper here. We have a couple of stories on just the nature of the copper market. And there's been a lot of discussion about copper being in short supply at some point this decade. We have first Quantum's Cobre Panama mine being taken off a line, you know, at least until May, it sounds like, which produces 1.9% of the copper supply. But we're still under $4 a pound copper. So we're still waiting for this commodity super cycle really to take hold 
But nevertheless, I would say we are getting hints of it. We see uranium over $90 now. We see gold at all-time highs. Are these the first hints of that super cycle? So a wonderful show for you, Cecilia, on the big themes of this year, including M&A, resource nationalism, China restrictions, Latin America, and more. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Nickel is year's biggest metals loser. Copper manages small gain. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. In a mostly lackluster year for metals trading, Nickel emerged as the worst performer and might not see a reprieve anytime soon. The metal used in stainless steel and electric vehicle batteries posted an annual drop of 45% on the London Metal Exchange, the biggest decline since 2008. That's by far the worst outcome among industrial metals and contrasts with a 2.2% gain for copper or with iron ore's advance of about 20% in Singapore. Metals have been pressured this year by global economic headwinds and uncertainty over China's growth outlook. The LME's all-in gauge of six metals is down 5.6% for the year, a second annual decline. So this is quite a contrast from the many claims of a super cycle in the metals, but perhaps it is just delayed here. But again, like Jeff Curry, the head of commodities at Goldman Sachs, he's not there anymore. He moved on, and I kind of wondered to myself if the fact that the big commodity supercycle trade had not panned out really, I wonder if that to a certain degree influenced his leave there. Not sure, but you know, it's not like the fundamentals have changed that much either. Let's continue. In most cases, concerns over tightening supply or even shortages have proved unfounded or perhaps premature. But those worries were particularly true for nickel, a market that's been flooded with a wave of new material from top producer Indonesia, demand growth has also faded. And we have a quote from Watai Futures Analysts who wrote in a note posted on their website, quote, nickel supply continues to grow, but consumption is showing no sign of improvement, end quote. Investors continue to bet against nickel. Net short positions on the metal among the top 20 brokers on the Shanghai Futures Exchange are currently the biggest in at least six months. Copper's annual gain comes from a fourth quarter rebound, helped by optimism that the Federal Reserve will start cutting interest rates next year. Prices will hit $10,000 a metric ton within 12 months, Goldman Sachs Group said in a December 18th note. On the final trading day of 2023, copper dropped 0.8% to settle at $8,559 a ton, and nickel fell 0.8% to close at $16,603 per ton. So... Nickel having a pretty tough year, down 45%. Continuing on, copper price dips but heads for yearly rise on healthy Chinese demand. And so just a little bit more on copper here. And scrolling down a bit, investors were divided on the outlook for 2024, with bulls highlighting the prospect for further stimulus in top metals consumer China, demand from the green transition, plus the hope of rate cuts as inflation subsides. Others were more cautious due to weak economic growth, which may cause recessions in some nations. And here's a quote from Malcolm Freeman, CEO at Kingdom Futures. Quote, It would seem the global economy is due to slow down even further in the first half of 2024, 
which means the bullish story for metals that some are putting out may have to wait a while. Isn't this the story of the last two years? That the bullish story for metals may have to wait a while. Perhaps gold being a big exception here. Continuing on, in China, however, copper demand climbed 3.2% this year after the country dropped its zero COVID policy, according to analysts at Brokerage China Futures. And here's just another detail at the end of the article. We were just talking about nickel here in the previous article. LME nickel fell 1.3% after LME inventories hit fresh 18-month highs, having surged by 38% in December, highlighting excess supplies. So inventories of nickel on the LME have surged 38% in December. Now, let's not forget everything that's happened as well with the UK sanctions on Russian metal. One wonders if that is a factor of this surge in supply on the LME. Finally, just another detail on the copper story. Chinese smelters have cut their Q1 copper guidance price as supply outlook tightens. This is Reuters via mining.com. China's top copper smelters lowered their first quarter guidance for copper concentrate processing treatment and refining charges as mine closures and disruptions tightened the supply outlook. And it says here, if we scroll down, miners pay processing treatment and refining charges to smelters to process copper concentrate into refined metal, offsetting the cost of the ore. The charges tend to fall, which is what's happening right now, when supply tightens and rise when more concentrate is available. So this all suggests that the copper market is, in fact, tightening up, which is quite interesting. Let's continue on. Mining investment in Chile to hit $66 billion by 2032, according to Cochilco. And so this is down from their previous estimate. This is Reuters via mining.com. Mining investments in Chile, the world's largest copper producer, are expected to hit $66 billion in the 2023 to 2032 period. The country's copper commission, Cochilco, said in a statement on Tuesday, that is less than the $74 billion estimated in its previous 10-year forecast released last year, as the new forecast takes into account 49 projects, while the previous one was based on 53 projects, Kachilko said. Copper projects are seen receiving the bulk of the projected investments for the period, with $57 billion, according to the Commission. Investments in gold, iron ore, lithium, and other industrial metals were estimated at $8 billion. So, that is quite interesting there too. So of the $66 billion, $57 billion is going to go into copper projects. That just illustrates for you how important copper is to Chile. $8 billion for gold, iron ore, lithium, and the other industrial minerals. And also in Chile, Chile's president praises Cadelco SQM lithium deal, ensuring state control. This is Reuters via mining.com. Chile's President Gabriel Boric hailed the formation of a new government-controlled lithium partnership that fuses assets of a state-run Cadelco with private miner SQM as the leftist leader advances his push for greater public control over the battery metal. Chilean lithium miner SQM said on Wednesday it would partner with copper giant Cadelco for the future development and production of the metal in the Atacama Salt Flat in a tie-up set to kick off in 2025 and run through 2060. The deal gives Cadelco majority control in line with the president's plans announced in April to strengthen state control of lithium to generate more broad-based benefits from surging demand and to allow only public-private partnerships to participate 
in its exploitation. We have a quote from Boric, quote, this is an unprecedented milestone in Chile's mining industry and a concrete step towards achieving fair and sustainable development. So following up on the intervention earlier this year for the Chilean government to have a bigger seat at the table in regard to lithium projects, continuing on, and just a headline here, iron ore price rises on upbeat Chinese industrial data and demand hopes. That is Reuters via mining.com. So seeing a little bit of optimism in the Chinese economy in regard to iron ore and steel. And continuing on, Biden extends EU steel aluminum tariff exemption for two years. This is Reuters via mining.com. U.S. President Joe Biden on Thursday extended the suspension of tariffs on European Union steel and aluminum for two years to continue negotiations on measures to address overcapacity and low-carbon production. The United States suspended import tariffs of 25% on EU steel and 10% on EU aluminum for two years from January 2022, replacing the tariffs imposed by former President Donald Trump with a tariff rate quota system. EU tariffs imposed in retaliation covered a range of U.S. goods from Harley-Davidson motorcycles to bourbon whiskey and powerboats. Those have also been shelved until 2025 after elections on both sides of the Atlantic. It's kind of a good point. You can make all the deals you want right now, but if there's going to be a new president in a year, maybe it's not even worth the effort. It's not like they stick to the deals anymore that previous administrations sign. The United States and the European Union had been seeking agreement measures to address excess metal production capacity in non-market economies such as China and to promote greener steel. The discussions were supposed to be resolved by 2023, but had stalled. In a presidential proclamation, Biden said the two sides had made, quote, substantial progress and were continuing their discussions, end quote. And finally, Biden kept tariffs fixed at the current level for non-EU countries. And continuing on, China's net gold imports via Hong Kong rise in November. This is Reuters via mining.com. China's net gold imports via Hong Kong rose about 37% in November from the previous month. Data showed on Thursday as the world's top consumer eased some import restrictions on the metal to meet expected demand for the Chinese New Year. Net imports stood at 36.8 metric tons in November, compared with 26.8 tons in October, the data showed. November net imports gained 118% on a year-on-year basis. Total gold imports via Hong Kong were up 37% at 46 tons compared to last month and up 121% from last year. And we have a quote from Bernard Sin, Regional Director of Greater China at MKS PAMP. Quote, towards the end of the year, China utilized some import quotas and relaxed some imports ahead of the Chinese New Year in February. In December, we will see a continuation in imports via Hong Kong and the rest of the world. End quote. The People's Bank of China controls the amount of gold entering the country via quotas to commercial banks. The Hong Kong data may not provide a complete picture of Chinese purchases as gold is also imported via Shanghai and Beijing. Last month, China also saw higher gold shipments on a monthly basis from Switzerland. The value of China's gold reserves rose to $145.7 billion at the end of November from $142 billion at the end of October. So ultimately, the official numbers, as far as I understand here, China basically purchased $5 billion of gold net in November. And finally, London gold price benchmark breaks all-time high LBMA says, this is Reuters via mining.com. 
London's gold price benchmark hit an all-time high of $2,069.40 per troy ounce at an afternoon auction on Wednesday, surpassing the previous record of $2,067.15 set in August 2020, the London Bullion Market Association said, also known as the LBMA. And we have a quote from LBMA Chief Executive Officer Ruth Crowell. Quote, I can see no clearer demonstration of gold's role as a store of value than the enthusiasm with which investors across the world have turned to the metal during the recent economic and geopolitical turmoils, end quote. And let's not forget the masterclass, really, that Jeffrey Christian gave last week in the interview that I did with him there, where he continues to say that the largest driver of the gold price is investment demand, and that is true for silver as well. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the bond market for a little bit of context here. U.S. 10-year bond is yielding 3.961%. That is 0.08% higher than last week. The U.K. 10-year gilt is yielding 3.67%. That is 0.17% higher as well than last week. And Italy's 10-year bond is also yielding more at 3.77%. That is 0.22% higher than last week. So yields are rising here. In the last week, just saw a headline on CNBC where the market was falling this morning, the first trading day of the year, and it was attributed to higher yields, interestingly. Let's turn to precious metals. Gold is trading at $2,076.30 per ounce. That is $4 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $24.16 per ounce. That is $0.40 lower than last week. So silver continues to not confirm. Again, if you haven't heard last week's interview with Jeffrey Christian, he parses out all of the subtleties in the relationship between gold and silver, which he ultimately treats as separate markets. So I would say somewhat de-emphasizing this gold to silver ratio relationship, although not ignoring it either. Continuing on, platinum is trading at $1,000 even per ounce. That is $30 higher than last week. Palladium is trading at $1,119 even per ounce. That is $4 lower than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is down $0.02 at $3.88 per pound, despite a fairly bullish narrative. You know, tightening supplies, lowering interest rates potentially. Let's continue. Iron ore is trading at $136.37 per metric ton. That is a dollar higher than last week. Aluminum is up two cents at $1.08 per pound. Lead is unchanged at 92 cents per pound. Nickel is five cents higher at $7.43 per pound. Tin is also higher at $11.53 per pound. That is 25 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.22 per pound. Lithium continues to trade in the $13 range at $13.63 per kilogram. That is four cents higher than last week, while uranium is at $91 even per pound. That is $5 higher than last week. And finally, zinc 
continues to climb at a dollar and 21 cents per pound. That is three cents higher than last week. So it seems like, again, something we've been seeing the last few weeks, echoing again what Jeffrey Christian was saying, it seems like each market is going in its own direction here with, say, palladium falling, platinum rising, gold rising, silver falling. No huge movements here. You know, industrial metals pretty mixed with no great moves other than perhaps uranium up $5, continuing a relentless climb. And we're going to have John Gorman on from the Canadian Nuclear Association later this month. So that should be fascinating on what he's seen in uranium. And again, zinc has just always had the wind in its sails, frankly, relative to the other metals in the last year. And that seems to continue this week. So each metal having its own story here. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Cecilia Jamazmi, Senior Editor at Mining.com, to look at the year that was, 2023, and the great mining stories that changed the industry from M&A to resource nationalism to Latin American politics to Chinese export restrictions and more. It is a wonderful discussion. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Cecilia Jamazmi, Senior Editor at Mining.com to the Northern Miner Podcast. Cecilia, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for coming back. Well, it's wonderful to have you. It's always uh, very enlightening and interesting to have you on. And I thought you would be a brilliant person to have on for the new year here. And so with that in mind, for you at your perch at Mining.com, how do you see this year? What were the big stories that really shaped this industry? I would say for me, one of the main issues was the uh, increase in resource nationalism. We've been talking about this for years, but this year in particular, we saw it very strongly in Latin America. We had, for instance, Mexico and Chile passing new laws that impose new restrictions, not only on mining itself, but they had the government more control. In Chile's case, at the beginning, people were talking about nationalization, but it was not. Pretty close, though. Uh, what they did was to pass a law that imposed that everyone who wants to mine for lithium or explore for lithium, they need to give the government a direct stake on it. So they have to do it in partnership with the government. So I think that was huge. It was a game changer, especially in jurisdictions such as Mexico and Chile that traditionally were considered very mining friendly. They're still mining friendly, but the government wants more now, right? And, and very recently, Panama, this was a topic that we had all year long, but it got very heated in October, November, when uh, First Quantum, the Canadian company, finally inked an agreement with the Panamanian government about the giant Cover Panama copper mine. And well, before and after that, huge demonstrations like nobody had seen in Panama before. They basically paralyzed the country and they were all anti-mining. So that forced the government to propose a referendum 
But then the pressure was so big that they went straight to parliament and they passed legislation. And basically, where are we now is that Panama now has new laws that restrict any mining or exploration for the time being. They're not granting any exploration licenses and they are reviewing all the ones they have right now. The main loser for now, as I said, is First Quantum that had to shut down Cover Panama. I don't know if uh, we talk about this during the year probably, but I'll I'll do a little reminder. Cover Panama accounts for about 1.5% of all copper production in the world. And it also accounts for about 5% of the Panama GDP. So it's not a minor, minor decision to shut an operation that makes up 75% of Panama's exports. I don't know what uh, the authorities were thinking. I don't know what the plan is, but it's definitely a game changer as well. Right now, First Quantum is taking the government to the International Court of Arbitration. So we should hear about this in the first quarter of next year. We just had an analyst on last, a geopolitical analyst, George Mm McLeod, on last week, and he was saying how he thought that First Quantum had quite a good case in this arbitration case. And to your point, it really does highlight how quickly things can change in, you know, what were once thought to be traditionally, you know, safe mining jurisdictions, Mexico. I mean, you know, this is like, is I don't want to say as safe as it gets, but it's right up there. Uh, mm-hmm. Is reliable. We wonder why so many Canadian companies are over there, right? Right, and and that's a lot to do with it. So it kind of changes the game, the the formula in the head of miners. I would think to say like you know just because things are good now and and have been before you know in the last twenty years doesn't mean in the next five years there's not going to be huge changes. Again, Chile and look at Panama. To your point, I mean, as you say, there's almost like a wave of activism that exists Absolutely. now in Latin America that didn't exist there before, right? Exactly. And the main difference I'm finding is that before was mostly like an elite government or politicians that they were pressing. Now it's people, anybody. I believe the power of social media has a lot to do with it, but they gather, they organize themselves, and they're able to paralyze a country just because they don't want something. I think that's a topic that is very related to resource nationalism, but it's... ASG issues are going to be even bigger in 2024 because we're seeing, like, we can say activism, the power of the people, how just normal citizens, common citizens can just take up on a topic, on an issue, and then force the government to basically close operation or uh, turn down investment. Uh, I find it uh, very, very interesting. And to your point, It's easy for us, you know, in Canada, you know, or the West to, you know, point fingers. But look at tech. I mean, tech, you could argue the reaction to that was very much a resource nationalism argument, even though, ironically, their big, you know, uh, copper asset was in Chile. Right. (laughs) Ironically. Right. I mean, but they didn't have the coal in Canada, but I didn't get the impression that was where the emotions were buried, so to speak. Yeah, well, also, I think being a Canadian company, that's where the the nationalism came about. But because it's kind of an icon for Canada, but especially in, in this world of uh, securing 
key minerals for the energy transition, namely copper, lithium, cobalt, nickel, all of those, even if you, they don't mine it in Canada, they're a Canadian company, somehow we have access to that copper for local markets. So it was important to protect it, given the context of what we are seeing right now. And just in terms of tech, before we move on to some of the other big stories, I mean, tech was a huge story in itself, right? And I thought you actually, when we had our interview on it a few months ago, I thought you really precisely described the psychological relationship between both of the new CEOs who had a lot to lose. And I felt like the outcome was a bit of a face-saving move where Glencore got the coal, right? And then uh, tech kind of retained its sovereignty, for lack of a better word here. And so both could walk away having felt like they got something out of the deal. And when that happened, I felt like I, I just thought about that interview we did and where you, I thought so much about that face-saving element. What are uh -huh. your thoughts on how it all turned out? Well, I think um, all things considered, it was the, the base case scenario. I don't think that Ted wanted to keep their coal assets. Well, it's not that I, I don't think. They have said they didn't want to keep it for the longer term. So finding a way to basically get rid of these assets, but also get something in return. And they kept like the most important right now, which are, as we mentioned, copper and all other base metals. So I think it was the base case scenario. The worst would have been probably like the takeover. But all things considered, I think that they did well in these negotiations. I agree. I felt like both parties, again, could walk away without feeling uh, too bad about the situation. So turning to other stories here, just while we're in Latin America, I mean, I feel mm -hmm. like we should touch on Argentina just a little mm -hmm. bit. I mean, it seems to me that Mile, the new president of Argentina, could actually be really good for the mining industry from their perspective. Do you have any thoughts on just what took place in Argentina and kind of how you're feeling about that story? Well, not exactly on the president because I'm not very familiar with his agenda. But I can say that Argentina was a big topic this year as well because it went from being kind of not unknown, but very minor in the lithium sector, just a name. It seemed like a hopeful in the lithium sector to actually attract hundreds of millions of dollars in investment just this year, it seems that the restrictions in Chile prompted a few companies to look to the neighbor where there are lithium deposits as well, you know, the geography, they're all the same, but they are not developed or very well identified. But in a matter of months, we saw so many companies, Chinese, Canadian, American, all of them landing in Argentina and basically driven by the search for lithium. So uh, I think that's a wake-up call for the neighboring countries. We always talk about the lithium triangle, that is that area that is in the north of Chile, Bolivia, and a bit of northern Argentina. But now they have found lithium in other areas in Argentina as well. So I think that's a very interesting developing story. And my feeling is if they continue to invest in the country as they have been this year, Argentina has a high chance of getting up there in among the top lithium producers in the world. Yeah, I could see that as well. I get the sense, and who knows, but I get the sense that things are looking 
good over there. And, you know, one of the big stories I kind of feel is the battery metals, how they're not really performing that well financially, right? Like, I mean, lithium dropped, I mean, dramatically. I, the last I mm -hmm. checked, it was at $13, just over $13 a kilogram. When I first started tracking it six months ago, it was 60 right so and cobalt is coming down so for all of the narrative around these battery metals the price hasn't really correlated shall we say mm -hmm. no that that was i have to say surprising at first for me as you say everyone talking about the lack of battery metals how important it is and then prices are coming down but i think it was a bit of a market reaction to a chinese slowdown in a way, but also the fact that they, everyone is so keen on battery metal that for a little bit there, it seemed to be an oversupply. And of course, when there's too much supply, prices will start, go down, but I don't think that's going to last. Not just me, analysting, it's not going to last long. And beginning January, we're going to see the prices of battery metals going up again, quite significantly. Very interesting. And it was a big year for M&A. Can you speak a little bit then about what you saw with mergers and acquisitions in 2023? A big topic underlining all these decisions and movement this year was inflation. Because as we know, inflation drove up prices of core products and services. And for mining companies, implied more expensive fuel, and more expensive power, therefore more expensive operations to run. And that kind of spurred mergers and acquisitions this year. And I just saw some interesting numbers a couple of days ago, according to global data, there were about 511 assets that changed hands this year in the mining sector between January 1st and December 15th. And from these assets, 305 were acquisitions and 12 were mergers. So according to global data, again, this is like the year where the highest amount of M&A in the past five years. Fascinating. And what do you conclude from it being mostly mergers over acquisitions? Is there anything to conclude from that or is it just simply that's just how it was? I think it's mostly it's reflecting market conditions. There's not a lot of money to just throw out there. So companies see this strategic combination, business combinations as a much better way to uh, empower themselves, less of a risk or a bet, if you want. Yeah, I think you actually hit the nail on the head there, where if you're <laughs> a mining company, especially the big ones, they got severely criticized for overpaying for assets. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to avoid uh, common criticism, of that kind, hey, maybe you're better off just doing a merger because then at least there's less to criticize there. That makes me think about Ernst & Young annual mining risks and opportunities survey that they put out every year. And this year, I remember they put like the access to capital as the number two risk because, as you say, global miners, the big miners were have been criticized for spending so much money. But at the same time, they need expansion. They need to meet increasing demand for minerals that are crucial for the energy transition. So we had BHP, for instance, still increases spending this year from, it's not a lot, but it went from 9 billion last year to 10. 
this year. And that included taking off the ground very important projects that uh, they've been like lacking for a few years, including the Janssen Potash Mine in Canada. They invested quite a bit in that this year. Then we have the second biggest miner in the world, Rio Tinto, that also increased the capex for this year. And mostly they used it to uh, ramp up the Simandu iron ore project in Guinea and the underground expansion of the Oyu Tolgoi copper gold mine in Mongolia. And as we talk about Argentina, they also went all in with the Salar del Rincon, that is a lithium project down there. The only one of these big miners that has not done great, let's say, it's Anglo American because it reduced the capex from 6.5 billion to six. It's not a big reduction, but at the same time, the stock this year has underperformed and it has gone down quite a bit. So um, that has the market talking about a possible takeover. I personally, given the history of Anglo American, find it hard to believe because management is very attached to the name and the origins of this company that is over 100 years old. And I think that it's likely that they will resist any hostile approach and instead they're going to focus on improving performance either through cost cutting or asset sales, any sort of debt reduction as well. But there are some analysts out there like Bernstein, and I'm going to quote them here. They said that a bidder could pay a 30% premium to Anglo America's current market value. And with that, they would acquire a huge amount of diversified assets. And they think the company right now is undervalued, undermanaged, and underappreciated. Fascinating. Yeah, we could almost do a whole show, it sounds like, on Anglo-American. Maybe we will in a month or two as mm-hmm. developments happen here. Mm-hmm. And so another thought that sort of hit me while you were talking was, I wonder, maybe interest rates also have to do with this idea that mergers are better than an acquisition. Because maybe if you have any debt, you probably want to get it down right now if you're paying 4 mm-hmm. or 5% on it, right? And so maybe that's another factor involved here that it's just a little bit more pricey to borrow. Most definitely. I mean, high interest has shaped a lot of markets this year. So it's not a surprise that it also influenced the mining sector decision. Okay, excellent. And uh, just another big topic seemed to be China and the export controls, as well as their relationship with the U.S. and this ongoing tension here, competition, as the Americans like to call it. What were your thoughts in 2023 of, I guess, the China story in the context of mining? Oh, well, this year we saw this cold war, let's call it in a way, this economic hide and seek that they are playing, getting to the point of restricting key minerals. For instance, both China and the U.S. restricted the, the movement of graphite in China, graphite, germanium and gallium. And then the United States cut down semiconductor shipment to China. So the war on critical minerals that they have going on just continued this year and followed last year moved by the U.S. At the end of the year, if I'm not incorrect, yes, it was at the end of 2022 when they earmarked hundreds of billions of dollars worth of spending in the Inflation Reduction Act. And the main purpose of this act was breaking China's grip on raw materials. How successful they've been, we'll have to see this 
probably in a couple of years, but there have been quite a few companies that have taken advantage of this act. It is interesting, right? Like the uh, abstract hopes and ideals of the lawmakers in regard to a very pragmatic real world, you know, what's often called a difficult industry. It will be very interesting to see uh, how far they get. It's to me, it's one of the big questions of the next few years, really, mm -hmm. uh, this gap between uh, the hopes and the reality. And just so as we're starting to wrap up here, I do want to touch on deep sea mining. Like I thought that was a really interesting story in the sense that it's kind of always around, but it seemed to take on a new importance, you might say, or it, it got a little closer to us in a, in reality. It's a little less theoretical, shall we say. Do you have any thoughts on deep sea mining? Indeed, this year we saw how the committee that was in charge of uh, proposing or shaping regulations, they missed the deadline, which from a legal point of view meant that the International Seabed Authority was legally allowed to start granting the exploration licenses. Again, there's been a lot of controversy. Governments and experts asking for a moratorium and whatnot. But the fact that they missed the deadline changed things. And there were lots of, not lots, hundreds of companies that apply for licenses now. And the companies haven't heard back yet. But the fact that they are now able to apply again for licenses is another game changer. Yeah, the pressure is building. So as we're wrapping up here then, Cecilia, what big stories have we not talked about of 2023 in our discussion so far? I think the biggest story that we did not mention was um, the Taliban. The Taliban, according to the local media and, well, not only local media, and AP, signed mining deals worth over $6.5 billion. This actor has not been in the scene, in the mining scene before, but $6.5 billion is not really a minor investment. They mostly invested in China, Iran, and Turkey, so they're keeping their investment geopolitically close by. So that would be an interesting thing, too. And what about cybersecurity? Was there anything to mention there? Well, yeah, this year, uh, it's kind of like um, deep ocean mining that we always hear about it and it's kind of there in the background, but we think it's not going to get to us. Well, many companies suffer big time this year from cybersecurity attacks in the mining business. I guess Anglo-American again was the one that was hit uh, most recently. They hacked the email system and they sent email with lots of like false information and course language, etc. But I think that's a point that uh, companies need to really, really start paying attention to it. And for me, cybersecurity today is what it was ESG 10 years ago, that everyone kind of talked about it, but nobody did much or invested much. And now it's a huge topic. It drives most of the investment. I feel that especially with the coming of artificial intelligence and all that, this point is going to get a lot more serious. So I think companies will need to look at this closely. That is a great point. The combination of cyber criminality and AI is actually quite terrifying. As a final question, what are you looking at as we look forward here? What do you have your eyes on? What's on your radar? 
Well, I'm very focused on what's going to happen again with battery metals. I want to see if all these predictions of prices picking up, they actually become true. And um, I think that, that basically, I'm, I'm very focused on battery metals. This day is the big topic driving the news. Excellent. Cecilia Jamazmi, Senior Editor at Mining.com. Thank you for joining us with this year-end review on the Northern Miner Podcast, and I wish you a happy holiday. Thank you, Adrian. Very happy to be back, and happy holiday for you and everyone who's listening to this podcast today. Thank you once again to Mining.com Senior Editor Cecilia Jamazmi for sharing her thoughts on the mining industry in the year that was 2023 and looking ahead into 2024. And thank you, dear listener, for continuing to join us here in our weekly exploration of how natural resources affect our larger world here in very concrete ways. I hope you're enjoying the discussion. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, Happy New Year and take care.